Welcome to If You Love This Planet. I'm Dr. Helen Caldicott, and in this program we talk about the greatest medical and environmental threats to all life, such as nuclear weapons and nuclear power, global warming, ozone depletion, toxic pollution, deforestation, and many other social and political issues that relate to global well-being. So if you love this planet, keep listening. Hello and welcome to If You Love This Planet. My special guest today is the leader of the Australian Greens Party and Senator for Tasmania, Christine Milne. Christine was elected to represent Tasmania, which is a state of Australia, in the 2004 federal election and she joined the Greens Senate team in July 2005. She was elected Deputy Leader of the Australian Greens in 2008 and succeeded Dr Bob Brown as the leader of the party in 2012. Senator Milne has a long involvement in community activism and politics, environmental issues and became the first woman to lead a political party in Tasmania in 1993. Christine Milne's vision to address climate change and her unparalleled experience with power-sharing minority governments led to the establishment of the Multi-Party Climate Change Committee and its successful negotiations to design the Clean Energy Future Package in the Australian National Parliament, which will place innovation, opportunity and clean energy at the forefront of the transformation of the Australian economy for the 21st century. Senator Milne is also a United Nations Global 500 Laureate and was a vice president of the IUCN, the World Conservation Union, from 2005 to 2008. Senator Milne, welcome to If You Love This Planet. Thank you, Helen. It's great to be on. Great. Now, uh, we're speaking a lot to Americans and to Canadians, so I want you to explain our particular Westminster system and, and minority parties and what is the Green Party and how did it start, Christine? Uh, well, let me start with the Green Party. So um, basically in Australia, as with many countries around the world, we had a, a party of uh, the, sorry, the Workers' Party, if you like, which was a Labor Party, which looked at dividing the spoils of uh, the earth, if you like, uh, to uh, workers. And we had conservative parties which wanted to divide the spoils of the earth or maximise the profits to the owners of capital. But both of them... Uh, as with uh, increasingly the Democrats and Republicans in the US and uh, elsewhere around the world, both of them think of the environment as being free, the Earth having an infinite ability to give up uh, resources and an infinite ability to absorb wastes to ocean and atmosphere. Now, the Greens emerged uh, out of Tasmania in the 1970s when the government here moved to uh, destroy one of the unique lakes on the planet, uh, Lake Pedder, when they were going to flood it for yet another hydroelectric dam. And so the Green Party started saying there are actually limits to what should be done and we need to protect biodiversity and wild places and protection of the environment should underpin uh, social well-being and economic well-being. 
And so one of the fundamentals of the Green Party, as opposed to all other political parties, and which is why it's a growing force around the planet, is because we've recognised that most of the major problems now facing the planet are coming from the fact that we've reached the limits of what can be extracted and what can be dumped, and we need to go back to first principles and get a much better relationship between people and the earth by changing the economic tools we use to govern that relationship. So that's where the Greens are coming from. So fundamental to us is environmental protection, social justice, so there's an equal sharing of uh, well-being, peace and non-violence, so saying that there, there is no uh, rationale at all for more investment in nuclear weapons, for example, and that's why we oppose expanded uranium mining in Australia. And finally, participatory democracy. We've said that the only way that you can have a more socially just and equitable society that values its environment is to have people participating as much as possible in democratic processes. And that's what the Greens stand for. In the Australian context, the Greens grew out of Tasmania, the first Green Party in the world, was the United Tasmania Group, which developed here in the early 1970s, and that's our 40th anniversary this year of green politics globally. The Values Party then started in New Zealand with a similar platform, and then Petra Kelly came from Germany, saw what we'd been doing in Tasmania, and went back to Europe, formed the Greens Party in Europe, and contested the European election as Greens, and that's how the European Greens and then the German Greens got started. And that was overwhelmingly, in the early days, uh, an anti-nuclear party in Europe, but it had those other broad components. In the Australian context, we have developed, we've grown in numbers from a few elected people in Tasmania. We now have people in most of uh, the state parliaments around Australia and we are now in the national parliament as well and the Greens hold balance of power in both of our two houses of parliament. We have a house of representatives which is the called the lower house, the house of government and we have a senate which is an upper house, the house of review and the Greens hold balance of power in both those, parties, both those houses of parliament right now. So we have a critical role to play. We are the third force in Australian politics and we are now polling regularly um, and consistently around the 12 to 13 percent mark of the Australian um, voting system. What a story. I was very close to Petra Kelly myself. In fact, we called ourselves sisters. We, we met in Ireland at a union conference where the Irish government was keen to build nuclear power plants and Petra and I spoke there and as a result um, of that conference, Ireland voted against having any nuclear power in Ireland. And we used to say, we're sisters, I'll do America on the anti-nuclear front and she'll do Europe. But I had no idea that she was inspired, in fact, by the Australian Greens and, of course, by Bob Brown. What a wonderful story. Yes, she came, uh, at that time she came to Australia and came down to Tasmania. She also stopped in, in Sydney where the union movement, uh, mainly led by Jack Mundy at the time, was carrying out green bans. So the workers were carrying out green bans against the destruction of some of the heritage buildings in the central part of Sydney, an area known as the Rocks. And it was uh, Jack Mundy and the unions who stopped the demolition of large parts of the, those heritage buildings. And uh, that 
was called a green ban when the unions refused to work on the destruction of those buildings for conservation and heritage reasons. And so that's where the name Green came from, from um, her coming to Tasmania, seeing what we were doing here in protection of forests and wild places, and then um, her hearing about the green bans in Sydney, and that's why she called it the European Green. Oh, isn't that wonderful? I can remember when they were elected to the Bundestag, the Green Party, and they came in dressed in colourful clothes, carrying huge tree branches with leaves into the Bundestag. Germany had never seen anything like it. It was so wonderful. Yes, and it's uh, great to see how the Green Party has uh, really expanded around the world. We've got Green Parties in more than 70 countries, and uh, in Canada, of course, there's been a very strong push by the Greens. Elizabeth May has shown real leadership uh, there, and also there's a fledgling Green Party in the United States. So we've got uh, very strong representation in Europe, a growing representation in uh, South America as well, and we've just had the third Global Greens Conference, which was held in Senegal, Dakar in Senegal, and we now have Green Parties in several African countries, including Rwanda. So it's pretty exciting to see the the spread of environmentalism and social justice and uh, anti-nuclear and participatory democracy in so many countries of the world led by the Greens. Yeah, the Greens need to take over the planet. That might be one <laughs> of the only hopes. Now, I wanted to interview you specifically on several things, Christine Milne, but one is refugees. Now, in Australia, um, we're still a very racist country. During the 50s and 60s, we had a policy called the White Australia Policy where we didn't let anyone with pigment in their skins to immigrate to Australia, and we've been very, very racist towards our Indigenous Aboriginal population, and we still are, and they live in very dreadful conditions in many, many areas. But at the moment, because of the terrible destruction that the Coalition of the Willing have created in Iraq and Afghanistan and uh, Pakistan, a lot of people... Not a lot, but some people are wanting to escape that persecution and killing and come to Australia. Many fly in and as such they're treated as refugees a la UN international law. But quite a lot are coming by boats um, and they're called the boat people and the people who organise the boats are called people smugglers because they get high fees from the people that they carry on these dilapidated boats and some boats sink and many people are drowning and there's a huge furor in within the federal parliament about the boat people and the people smugglers but it's basically I think racist. Now I'm really interested Christine Milne in what the attitude of the Greens is towards this particular problem that Australia is now currently facing. It is very complicated, um, Helen, and the Greens have taken a really strong view from the start. We oppose the war in Iraq. We are calling for the troops to come home from Afghanistan immediately and have been doing that for some time. And we've been calling for much greater assistance, civilian assistance, uh, in Afghanistan rather than continuing the war there. And I keep saying to people, why do you think people are coming as refugees? Mm. Uh, we are, if we are bombing these places, if we're killing civilians and the like, of course you're going to have people who are 
desperate to leave and uh, and there's persecution going on in those countries all the time and they are going to try and come and make a better life. And so when that happens, surely uh, not only do we have an obligation because Australia is a signatory to the Human Rights Convention and the Refugee Convention and we've been that since the early 50s and we've got an obligation, of course, to take people who are seeking asylum in our country because of persecution. But we've got a particular obligation because we have been part of the problem in terms of mm. our involvement in Iraq and Afghanistan. And the other thing that I think is not well understood is that Australia made a decision not to give visas to anyone trying to come to Australia uh, from uh, Iraq, Iran or Afghanistan. And so they don't have the option of flying in because they can't get a visa. Whereas if you are trying to fly in from another country, you might get a visa and arrive and declare yourself to be asylum an asylum seeker at the airport, which is why the overwhelming majority of people fly into Australia seeking asylum. But people from Afghanistan uh, and Iraq and Iran do not have that option from the start. Oh, and I my colleague, know. I yes, my colleague that. Sarah Hanson-Young has just been in Indonesia where she met an Afghani woman and her three children. Her husband had been a journalist in Kabul. He had written uh, very critically about the Taliban and so he was murdered. And she knew that she would be murdered and the children would be as well. So she packed up and left and she's been on the run for 10 years <sighs> through the camps. And she's currently in um, squatting camp in Indonesia. People who are in these camps uh, are regarded as illegals both by the Malaysian and Indonesian government. And so they can't send their children to school. They can't access medical help. They're not allowed to work. And so they live these terrible lives. And so this woman said to my colleague, I have three children and I want them to go to school. I just want them to have a decent life. I want them to be healthy. And now I am stuck here in Indonesia and there is no prospect of me being resettled even though I've been classified as a refugee because most of these people have been assessed as refugees. What can I do? And she said, I don't want to go on a boat. I don't want to risk my children's lives. But on the other hand, I can't just sit here and have my children grow up with no education, no opportunities and so on. And that's the position people are actually put in. And these are the people who Tony Abbott and Julia Gillard, that is our Prime Minister and our Leader of the Opposition, say... We want to deter these people from coming to Australia. We want to stop them from coming. And so they have taken a policy of saying that if these people who are not allowed to have a visa to fly in, who are stuck in these camps, if they try to get to Australia in a boat, we will intercept that boat. And if it's the case of the leader of the opposition, they will turn that boat around and send it back to Indonesia where the Indonesian government has said they do not want them and will not accept them. And in the case of our Prime Minister, she would take them off the boat and send them back to a camp in Malaysia where the same situation would apply. So what level of hopelessness are we imposing on people who are simply trying to come to our country to have a better life? So the Greens have said we have to stop this policy of deterrence because it is absolutely inconsistent with our obligations um, and with decency and humanity 
and we have to make sure that people are quickly processed either in the region where they turn up or if they turn up in Australian waters or in Australian territory, they must be processed here as refugees and we should increase our humanitarian intake because at the moment we only take 13,750 people a year as humanitarian intake for refugees. And just to give you an idea of the level of hopelessness of people sitting in these camps and why they feel so desperate, Australia has only taken on average 60 people, 60 people from Malaysia and Indonesia combined in the last decade, 60 people a year on average. So for some of them, if they are waiting there, you know, you could be waiting 70 years given the number of people who are in those camps. So... The Greens have said, look, this is inhumane, we will not accept this. And the other thing that's so horrible about people dying at sea on these boats is there is a real tension between a policy of deterrence which says we will only rescue these people when the boat is actually capsized and people are in the sea and our obligations under safety of lives at sea because our Navy, like every other Navy around the world, clearly has as its first priority the rules of the sea and they are that you must save people when they're in trouble. And clearly, Australia knew that the boat that went down recently where 90 people drowned, we knew that boat was in trouble on the Tuesday afternoon. We did not intervene until Thursday when we then told the Indonesians we would go in and rescue them, but they were already the boat had already capsized. Now, clearly, we are not prioritising safety of lives at sea. We are rather only going in at the last minute when it's already um, a tragedy in the making. So they are the kind of things happening here, and because the Greens have said we do not support your deterrence policy, we do not support turning the boats around, we want you to prioritise safety of life at sea, but more particularly, we want to stop making people feel so desperate that that's the only option they've got, and that's why we want to take a higher number of people. We need to increase that humanitarian intake to 25,000, take 5,000 immediately to take the pressure off right now and also to then take a leadership role in the region by upholding our obligations under the Refugee Convention and Human Rights Convention and try and take a lead in the region to get other countries to sign up to those conventions and then Australia put more money into regional assessment and then work with other countries like Canada and the US uh, and European countries to try and get other people to increase their humanitarian intake so that we can resettle people more quickly. And if we did that, you would absolutely take the pressure off people feeling like they had no choice. So what, what you would do is the people in the camps now in Indonesia and Malaysia and the like, the Greens would would um, if they applied for refugee status, would give them visas to Australia so they could come to Australia by flying or by a decent boat, come here, be assessed, and if they're true refugees, they can stay. Is that, and what about people who still persist in coming by boat? What would you do about that? Well, we'd, we'd do exactly the same thing. We are totally opposed to offshore, offshore processing, and offshore processing means that people who turn up on our shores in a, in a boat... Uh, offshore processing means we 
expel them. We repudiate them. We send them away again. The Greens say, no, that is completely the wrong thing yeah. to do. Yeah. We need to assess them wherever they land. And if they land in Australia, then we assess them here. Yeah. And if they are found to be genuine refugees, then we resettle them. You know, um, and and that is that is what every decent country does. And if you are a signatory to the convention, that's what you're expected to do. And naturally, at the moment, there is a spike around the world in refugees, particularly from Afghanistan and Iraq and Iran. And that is hardly surprising, given the role of, uh, as you say, the the coalition of the willing in what they've done there. And you only have to look at the attacks in Afghanistan, the drones and the impacts on civilians, the fighting that's going on at the moment, the uh, persecution of the Hazaras, for example. Uh, It's no wonder around the world in the last 12 months there has been a 20% increase in people seeking asylum. You know what it reminds me of, Christine, the Jews. <laughs> you know, I think it was Roosevelt who wouldn't let shiploads of Jews from Germany land in, in America. They were shunned by the Catholic Church. They were killed. You know, six million of them were tortured and killed. It's the same thing. It's the same thing. We're turning people away who are desperate to save their lives and, and for their children not to be killed and tortured. It's the same thing. Well, it's interesting. I was talking to Malcolm Fraser the other night, a former Prime Tell Minister people, of Australia. Yeah, he's a former Prime Minister, yes. A former Prime Minister of Australia, uh, a Conservative Prime Minister of Australia. And he is very strongly of the view, uh, the same as the Greens, that Australia will never lift its uh, reputation globally or in the region unless we adhere to decent human rights and actually show leadership in this regard. And as he quite rightly points out, that after the Vietnam War, when he was uh, Prime Minister, he did work with other countries in the region for substantial resettlement of Vietnamese people in Australia. And I have to say, they have made a fantastic contribution to this country. And uh, personally, I helped a Vietnamese family back in the uh, 1970s And I caught up with them again recently. They found me again because I got into the Senate and had a profile in public life, so they were able to find me because they moved from Tasmania to the mainland of Australia and I lost touch with them. And they had uh, three little girls when they first came uh, as boat people to Australia all that time ago. And now their three girls have grown up or have a son as well. They all have tertiary qualifications They're all making a fantastic contribution to this country. And I just think, why can't people see that the Afghani people who are trying to come here and escape persecution and so on will be the next wave of major contributors to the Australian community? Yeah, well, all I can say, Christine Milne, is we're a racist country. Not everyone, but gee, it's, it's fairly... Ubiquitous, and I'd have to say at the moment, so is America. I mean, the Tea Party is basically about racism. No one will raise the issue, but it is. People can't stand having a black man in the White House, let alone a black woman and two black children. And people don't want to talk about that because it's politically incorrect, but it's the truth. And uh, I, I think we should be really honest about these things, but I want to move on because along with refugees, Christine, is global warming. And we all know 
that as global warming increases and Bangladesh drowns and there are catastrophic floods all over the con- all over the world and the Pacific Islands drown, etc., the number of refugees to countries such as ours, Australia and America and elsewhere, are going to increase by orders of magnitude. I don't see this ever addressed in the Australian press or by Australian politicians. Would you like to talk about that, Christine Milne? Yes, I think it's a really critical issue, Helen, and uh, it's something the Greens have raised for years, that we need a new category in the Refugee Convention, which covers environmental refugees, because clearly uh, we are going to have a massive wave of refugees driven by global warming, and it's already happened if you look in... uh, in Africa, for example, we've mm. had extreme drought already driving people away from their lands. You've had con- most of the conflict that has occurred uh, because of the impacts of extreme weather events has I- occurred internally, and that displacement will eventually spill over borders. So, for example, when I was at uh, some of the climate meetings in Africa, I heard about how there's such conflict now between native animals and domestic animals um, in the villages because there's so little water. So the wild animals are coming into the villages and so there's a bigger assault, of course, on native animals and there's also stealing of water resources between different um, communities as people try to, to, to keep alive in these circumstances and then, of course, people are driven from their villages and women particularly are appallingly affected because they have to go further and further in search of water. And you you can just see how the conflict is going to escalate. But in mm. the terms of the Bangladesh, as you mentioned, already people living on the levees are being overwashed in the big tides and in the floods and people are losing their lives and their livelihoods. And in the Pacific Islands, for example, Kiribati, and not to mention Tuvalu, Tuvalu already recognises that they really are going to struggle to stay where they are and their political leaders stood up in the global talks and just said, who will take my people? Yeah. It is a really powerful question, who will take my people? And of course, Tuvalu and the Pacific Islands have done nothing to contribute to global warming, nothing at all. They are the first victims of the dumping of so much waste to atmosphere by countries like Australia, the US, Europe, um, pushing so much carbon dioxide to atmosphere, causing sea level rise, saltwater incursion into their freshwater lenses in these Pacific Island countries. And the result is that the saltwater goes into their freshwater lens so they can no longer pump that water to irrigate their crops so they're not being able to feed themselves their kids are getting sick because they, they, they haven't got fresh water anymore. They're having to import more and more of their food from New Zealand and Australia, which means it's packaged food, and so it tends to be high in um, sugar and, and salt and the like, and there's a high incidence of obesity and diabetes. We're also seeing in those communities um, a loss of their protein because the uh, Cigatera virus is, is spreading and so they can't eat fish. So you, you look down on a place like uh, the Cook Islands and uh, uh, Aichitaki, for example, and it looks like paradise from the air and you fly into it and you see these $500 a night bureaus from you know big resort chains and outside those resorts you see people who are struggling to feed themselves at all. So... 
we are seeing around the world those those communities. Kiribati, for example, is saying to Australia, well, we'd like you to take um, a greater number of our kids to educate them in Australian schools so they can come back to Kiribati and work while they can. But then at the point when we have to move, they'll be better able to get employment in Australia if they've had the benefit of an Australian education. So what people in those Pacific Island countries are looking at is essentially a phased um, process of moving. They, they move from the outer islands or the islands that are disappearing, the islands where they're losing their culture because the sea level rise and the extreme weather events are ripping away their coasts where most of them have their burial grounds, for example. And so you're seeing real cultural loss in those communities. And now what they're worrying about most is when they do have to evacuate, they'd like to evacuate as communities so that they maintain their cultural and language links rather than just be broken up and taken as a few families here and a few families there. So we do have to get serious globally about how we are going to manage essentially the relocation of whole cultural groups out of the Pacific. I don't know if it's the same in the Caribbean, but I expect... There are outer islands there that are in similar positions. And uh, we're seeing the loss of coral reefs around the world because of increased acidification in the oceans, not to mention ocean warm, uh, global warming and the warming of the oceans. And, of course, the extreme weather events, more and more intensity around the cyclones. And as we've just seen in the United States, extreme hot days, extreme fire events. We're going to see more and more of this. And uh, the Tea Party, and in Australia the coalition and the climate deniers generally, uh, and particularly in our country in Australia, those who are driving a massive expansion of coal mining and coal exports, are actually driving the weather events around the world that are killing and displacing so many people. Mm, I know. So, after that expose, (laughs) we'll move on to the next subject. Now, Australia is one of the countries in the world that has what's called a carbon tax. Um, I commissioned a study with a wonderful physicist called Arjun Makajani some years ago after I had a conference called Nuclear Power and Global Warming for two days, a symposium in Washington with just the very best brains in the world talking about this. And at the end, one man stood up and his name is David Freeman, who was the science advisor to Jimmy Carter who was the uh, director of the Tennessee Valley Authority who closed down, I think, four reactors and the like. Very brilliant guy. And he stood up at the end of this conference and said, America can have all the energy it needs by 2050 with no carbon and no nuclear. And I said, you must be kidding, David. He said, no, it can. So I raised the money, commissioned the study, and Arjun did it. He was very sceptical about this. But when he studied all the renewables that are available now, which are really cheap and going ahead like crazy, solar, wind, geothermal, conservation, uh, cogeneration and the like, it's easily doable. And in fact, it's not 2050 now, but it could probably be done by 2030. and one of the things that he he thoroughly recommended was a carbon tax of, I think it was $30 a tonne of CO2 extruded into the atmosphere by energy companies and all the rest as they burn coal. And so then you use that money for renewables and the like. Now, 
I know that the Greens in the coalition with the Labor government at the moment have persuaded the government to have a carbon tax, I think it's only $23 a tonne, which is not nearly enough, to reduce CO2 emissions by only 5% by 2020, and it should be uh, 20% at least or 25%. Now, I know that you were partly responsible for bringing the carbon tax in. Christine Milne, would you like to talk about the deficiencies and why you couldn't get to the end point which was absolutely appropriate and what awful dynamics now are going on within Australia and the fear-mongering that's happening? Well, Helen, I, I made a priority when I came into the Senate to address global warming. That was my um, absolute passion to have Australia actually act on the science of global warming with the speed uh, that was necessary because we are in Australia a predominantly resource-based economy and a fossil fuel-based economy. Most of our electricity is generated from coal in Australia and, of course, we are a huge exporter of coal and expanding coal as we speak and, yep. of course, gas as well. Yep. So Australia loves fossil fuels. Australia loves being a major polluter and we are one of the highest per capita polluters on the planet. So we have a, a huge responsibility in my view. So when I came into the Senate, I was determined to get a whole of government approach that would address global warming. So I have persisted with that and persisted with that and worked out a number of strategies to get us to 100% renewable energy as quickly as possible. And so when after the 2010 election in Australia nationally, no one party won a majority then the Prime Minister of the day, a Labor Prime Minister, asked the Greens if we would give confidence and supply to a Labor government. What supply? Tell people what, do, what does supply mean? Okay, sorry. It means that in order for the government to be able to govern successfully, they have to get their budget measures through the Parliament and that in any vote of confidence in the government that uh, might be brought, that, be, that you would support the confidence of the government, that is, maintain them in power. Right. So in order to maintain them in power and uh, support their budget initiatives, their appropriations so they can pay pensions and wages and those sorts of things, I made a central plank of that, that the Prime Minister set up a multi-party committee with a view to bringing in a price on carbon and doing that in this period of government and having it operational from the 1st of July 2012. That was a central component of our agreement to give them confidence and supply, in addition to things like establishing a universal access to dental care and the like. But carbon pricing was absolutely central to it because both the Labor Party in Australia and the main opposition party, the Coalition, didn't want to do anything about pricing carbon and in the election campaign had said neither of them would do it in this period of government. So it was a big thing to require the Prime Minister to do that, but she wanted to be the Prime Minister and so that was the price that, that they had to pay. We set up the multi-party committee and the Greens took the view that we should be aspiring to 350 parts per million. That is what the science has told us we need to be approaching if we are going to secure anything like uh, a safe climate into the future. Three, However, wait a minute, 350 
parts per million of carbon dioxide. dioxide, But when the Industrial Revolution began, it was 280 parts per million, and we are now up to or beyond 350 parts per million. Oh, we certainly are, and we need to come. We need yeah. to come back yeah. very fast, and uh, and so that means not only stopping carbon dioxide going to atmosphere, but preserving all of the stores of carbon dioxide we have on the planet, and that's why it's so important to maintain forests and native vegetation wherever we can as well. However, uh, when when we we got onto the multi-party committee, I said to them, we need to have a serious go at this, which means we need a whole-of-government approach. So we need a landscape approach that says we need to protect the carbon stores in the landscape. So we established a biodiversity fund that would enable the restoration of wetlands, for example, and also the restoration of of, uh, forests that had been degraded and so on. And uh, so we've got a biodiversity fund of a billion dollars over six years, and we've also got a carbon farming initiative which enables uh, particularly Indigenous communities, I'm very proud about this, to be able to change savannah burning regimes to significantly reduce carbon going to atmosphere and create jobs across remote communities. So a lot of work done on, on maintaining carbon in the landscape. The second thing we needed to do was to recognise that there's no way the government or was going to do anything that would get a high enough carbon price to drive the rollout of renewable energy because they simply would not budge in coming to the 350 parts per million, which would have required a high carbon price. We said then, all right, well, then Treasury has to model because we tried to get them to model 350 and they refused. They modelled a 450 parts per million and a 550 parts per million price. And the $23 is a reflection of 550 parts per million when we know full well... That's suicidal. (laughs) <laughs> we know full well that 550 parts per million is way beyond two degrees, which Australia has signed up for in Copenhagen and subsequently through Cancun and Durban. We have said we want to be part of a global agreement that maintains global warming to less than two degrees, and yet they would not agree to a carbon price or that would give us 450, let alone 350. So... 550 parts per million works out to $23 a tonne. If we had gone to 450 parts per million in the Treasury modelling, we would have got a price above $50 a tonne and they wouldn't model 350, but of course it would have been much higher and would have gone up, you know, probably in the 70s. But anyway, we ended up... What's the temperature going to be at the end of the century with 550 parts per... Million. Well, what will the temperature be? We're on track for four degrees. Four degrees, that's antithetical to life. That's right. So... It, it's not. It is not enough. So when when it was decided, when the government decided that the most they would agree to was a 550 parts per million scenario with a 23 dollar carbon price, the Greens said, "Well, we we cannot have that without complementary measures that bring on renewable energy at scale and urgently because we need to get off coal-fired generation as fast as possible." And so we negotiated a $10 billion clean energy finance corporation with a view to investing in large-scale renewable energy and also that's on top of our renewable energy target, which is currently at 20% of Australian energy to be produced from renewables by 2020. And currently the Greens are trying to get that 
uh, expanded significantly and we've said we want to go to 100% renewables as quickly as possible. And what's happening in Australia, which is what I assume has happened uh, maybe in the United States, but it certainly has happened in Germany, and that is once people get started on renewables, it goes much faster mm. than governments ever predict because yeah. people are so keen to take it up. Yeah. And in Germany, um, the renewables are just uh, going ahead in leaps and bounds because of their feed-in tariff regime, which has led to a point where Germany now has to subsidise gas-fired power stations to just make up the difference between what the renewables produce and what's necessary for energy security because the renewables have put the old fossil fuel model out of business. And that's the big problem in Australia right now. The renewables are going ahead so fast, the technology is so good, Mm. and we know we can do uh, concentrated solar thermal with molten salt Uh, as storage. Mm. We know we can do all these things, but the problem is so much of the vested interest in political power are associated with the uh, coal-fired companies and they can now see the renewables will put them out of business much faster than they expected. And so there has been a pushback uh, from the fossil fuel sector who are trying to wind back our renewable energy target. So that's a big fight we're about to have in Australia in the next six months or so. The other initiative we brought in, um, so we've got an emissions trading scheme that's been legislated, which will have a three-year fixed price period, um, and and then it'll go to the global flo- uh, floating price. And then we have an energy efficiency uh series of uh, measures. They don't go far enough, but we've got them there. So essentially, it's a four-pillar process. It's emissions trading, it's boosting renewable energy with the Clean Energy Finance Corporation, it's energy efficiency measures, and it's carbon in the landscape. But what I'm pleased about with what the Greens were able to do with that was to say that these are all platforms. They are not ceilings. They are the base from which we need to work and we need higher ambition in what we try to achieve right across all those. And to that end, we had set up a climate change authority similar to the one that there is in the United Kingdom. And the climate change authority is charged with looking at all the latest science and coming up with the carbon budget that will be necessary to achieve an 80% reduction in emissions in Australia by 2050. Now, the Greens wanted to have net carbon zero by 2050, Mm. but we could not get the the government to agree to that. So the best we could get was 80. But uh, the Climate Change Authority is now charged with abandoning the 5% target Mm. and instead coming up with a series of carbon budgets to get us to that 80% in the time frame. So we've moved it as far as we can. We've also required the energy market operator in Australia to do scenario planning for 100% renewable energy and they're looking at a scenario plan of 100% renewables by 2030 and 100% renewables by 2050. So we are starting on that journey of forcing the authorities to actually look at the scenarios that would get us to where we need to be in the time frame. Oh, wow, that's very exciting and congratulations. You know, I'm an Australian and I didn't know all of that. So what I I would say is that you need to get on the the programs more often, television, and explain that in simple terms so the ordinary Australian really understands what's going on. Because at the moment we've got a horrible, horrible 
man who's the leader of the opposition called Tony Abbott. Some people call him Tony Rabbit. Um, and he, uh, his, he says if he gets elected and he's running around the country telling people that the price of bread is going to go up when the carbon tax comes in and all sorts of terrible lies, and he's, and, and he's frightened people. And he's now more popular than the Labor Party and the Prime Minister. And if there was an election today, he'd get elected. And he's saying if he gets in, he's going to destroy everything that you've just talked about, Christine Milne. Yes, that's right, and that's why it's really uh, very disturbing to see the Labor Party in Australia now saying that in the election they would they would prefer to have the coalition members elected to be able to do all that, to destroy everything, rather than to prefer Greens to be elected to keep all this in place, which just shows you what a struggle it is in Australia to keep either of the major parties honest on mm dealing with global warming, but I don't believe Tony Abbott will be able to reverse what we have done because, and that's because of the cost. Now, one of the really exciting things that I achieved, and this is part of my going back to explain how the Greens think about the world, if the challenge at the moment is to make sure we stop using non-renewable resources at the rate we're using them, and we stop destroying the planet's atmosphere and oceans, then what we have to do is tax the things that are destroying the oceans and the environment and so on. We have to tax those, and we have to lift the taxes off the things that are good. So in the carbon, in this whole package, what we have done is said, okay, we are going to put a price on pollution. So the polluter is actually going to pay for polluting the atmosphere and driving up ocean acidification and so on. So we are going to put a price on carbon pollution, and that is the tax effectively of $23 a tonne to stop you from doing it and slow this down. At the same time, we are going to increase the tax-free threshold in Australia. That is the price, the level at which you would start to pay income tax. So currently in Australia, you don't pay income tax on the first $6,000 you earn, but then you start to pay tax. Now, because we are charging the polluters, we are changing it so that you don't pay tax in Australia until you earn $18,200. So that means particularly for students, particularly for people who are working part-time and who may only earn a total, say, of thirty-five dollars or $40,000 a year, they're going to go to not paying tax on the first 18000 they earn. So we're taking the tax off people's income and making those things which are destroying the planet uh, pay. Now, what Tony Abbott, the leader of the opposition, is saying is that he's going to get rid of the polluters paying because he doesn't want them to pay. He says he's going to keep the tax-free threshold, that is, he's going to keep the tax cut, but he hasn't said where he's going to get the money from. And if the polluters aren't paying, well, who is going to pay? He's going to have to back down on his promise on the tax-free threshold. So, what Pay for what, see, though, Christine? Pay for what? Well, he says that instead of requiring the polluters to pay, pay. how he will get them to reduce their pollution is give them taxpayers' money. What? He will actually subsidise the polluters to stop polluting. So he will go to the coal-fired power stations and pay them to shut down 
rather than tax them so That's that their so business stupid. model becomes yes it is totally it's totally stupid and it won't work and that's why I think it's just, as I've said, it's a great big lie. And every day that this goes on, it is shown to be so. And the other half of the money that we are getting in terms of the pollution money, we're using that to give households, those people who are not income tax earners, so they're people who are retired or maybe on some kind of benefit or whatever, they are getting a compensation of the amount that we've calculated that the coal-fired generators will put up the power bills so we are compensating households so that they don't have to pay. Now that's where Tony Abbott is really lying to people but I think I've said quite openly that I just don't think the economics of what Tony Abbott is saying stacks up Mm. and the result is going to be that the coalition in Australia is going to either have to change their leader, get rid of him or get rid of their policy or get rid of both But the extraordinary disconnect, and it's the same that's happening in America at the moment, the extraordinary disconnect is here we are expanding coal mining and sending it overseas to burn it to drive global warming as fast as we can. Then we have Cyclone Yassie hit the coast of Queensland, a much more intense cyclone than ever before, and a massive flooding event going with it. Huge, huge damage to coastal communities, to infrastructure, loss of life and so on. So the Queensland government says to the Australian government, we need you to to tax the whole population with a flood levy to help us build, rebuild from the damage of the cyclone and flood that we have helped to cause by expanding our coal mining and exports. And then saying we need a national disaster fund because we're having these national disaster, natural disasters, but refusing to acknowledge that the natural disasters are linked to global warming, which they are driving with their focus on on massive expansion of fossil fuels. And I noticed the same in the United States, where you've got the Tea Party and the Republicans denying global warming, can't deny the extreme fires, can't deny the extreme heat, can't deny the massive loss of Arctic sea ice and so on, and yet wanting some measures to support them without taking responsibility for the fact that their policies are driving these outcomes to ordinary people. So what what our challenge, I think, is, Helen, is to make people see there is a direct link between the costs in loss of life, infrastructure, horrible uh, circumstances that go with extreme weather events, a complete link with that, and the failure to actually address global warming and the need to do carbon pricing or taxing or renewable energy and the like. And we just haven't been able to make people see those connections as well as they should. It's really, I I, I don't understand really, Christine, the psychology behind these idiots. And I I have to say they're idiots. I mean, the scientific data is in. Now we're seeing the impact of global warming. I wrote wrote a book about this in 1991 called If You Love This Planet. Everything that's happening now was predicted then by the scientists. Catastrophic weather conditions, drought, floods, fires, you name it. And, you know, I had the impression that, well, I've written a book, everyone will read it and I'll fix it. Of course, no one read it and it didn't get fixed. But uh, what, what is it? purposeful manic denial or do they not care about the future for their children um, 
or is it a conservatism they don't want to be interrupted from their comfortable lives and made to think and do something that might really help the planet? I, I, I kind of don't understand this mass psychosis, if you will. Well, I've thought a lot about it and uh, it goes back for me to um, to the visit I had to Itataki back in the early 2000s and it was a it was a uh, global biodiversity forum meeting and I was chairing one session on climate change and there were some young activists there from the Cook Islands and uh, working on climate change. So uh, we did all the science and everything that was happening to them and uh, I said to them, so you know, what do we have to do next? And they said, well, you see, the problem here is that everybody here are very fundamentalist Christians and they believe that all these extreme weather events and what's happening to them is the beginning of the second coming and they're saying, bring it on. And so I sat there quite shocked. I thought, well, I don't really know how to respond to that right now. And I've thought about it a lot since, and what it actually says is it doesn't matter how much information you give people, if it's mm. not consistent with their values or their world view, mm. they're just going to reject it. And so no matter how much science, no matter how much evidence you give to mm. people that global warming is real and happening, and this is the evidence, if their world view is, I'm comfortable, my my job or my well-being depends on consuming more, uh, building bigger houses, you know, driving a bigger car, using more fuel, um, sticking with coal fire and the rest. If my vested interest in my life is dependent on that, then I'm just going to reject this because that is my worldview. And I've just got to the point where I think that that is what has gone on. So... It's psychology that we need to yes. be employing to help us in this yes. because science hasn't been enough. Yeah. We now have to deal with why people deny things, how you get people to see things differently with their world view. Mm. So when I came back to, from that meeting, I went to talk to the World Council of Churches and I said, you know, there are two, two competing views here. One is the second coming view. The other is that people have got stewardship of the planet as part of a Christian ethic as well. And so you have to ch you have to go out and say that a failure to steward the planet is actually not a ticket to paradise. <laughs> and you have to go out and sell the opposite message in a Christian context. Yeah. And I think that's what we have to do in terms yeah. of a an economic and well-being, not in, not in a Christian sense, but more in the sense of saying... If you do want a good future for yourselves and your children and you want to be secure and you want to have a good life, then you have to deal with global warming because if you don't, the things that you value uh, are going to be at threat. And yeah. somehow we have to make people see that the lifestyle that they have at the moment cannot be maintained if they want to be safe and secure into the future. Well, on that note, we've we've reached the end of our time, Christine Milne. It's it's been absolutely fascinating. Uh, we could talk for hours, I'm sure, uh, but I'm sure it's plumbed into people's um, brains, neocortexes, midbrains, maybe brain stems to make them rethink things and 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 decide what they're going to do next to save the planet. I thank you so much for two things. One, for being who you are and the work you've done in Australia and internationally. Christine, you're a pioneer. And two, for this wonderful interview. 
Thank you, Helen. Thank you. My guest today on If You Love This Planet was Senator Christine Milne, who is the leader of the Australian Greens Party, which holds the balance of power in the Australian Parliament and, as you heard, is doing wonderful pioneering things in this country. I hope you all enjoyed it. I hope it made you think. Um, please feel free to contact us via the webpage ifyoulovethisplanet.org and if you'd like to contribute to this worthy work, I think, um, please go to the donate button now and click on it. All right, um, we'll be back again with you next week for another fascinating program. Bye for now. You've been listening to If You Love This Planet with Dr. Helen Caldicott. This program is broadcast on community radio across the United States, including our host station, KPFT Pacifica, Houston, Texas. This program is produced and engineered by Jazz Williams, co-produced by Scott Powell, and our publicity and outreach are coordinated by Amanda Bellerby. To listen to previous shows or to make a donation, go to our website, if you love this planet.org.